now discovering the complex and delicious world of chocolate. It's Arthur's Table on Food FM with Arthur Potts Dawson. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson. Welcome to Food FM. My name is Arthur Potts Dawson, and joining us today are Sophie, I have to get this right, Sophie. Van der Bakken, am I saying that right? Yes, quite. This is Sophie okay. van, van der Bakken in French, but that's great. <laughs> oh, Van der Bakken, thank you, Sophie. We have Chantal Cody and we have Marcos Patchett. I'm so excited because you know this is a conversation about chocolate. And Chantal, Marcus, and Sophie are the chocolatiers of the world. I mean, you know, we've got Sophie who's in Mexico, Marcus who's a medical herbalist, and he's in the UK, and, and Chantal who's, who's helped put this group together. Um, and we're going to be running probably for the next hour to, to discuss chocolate and, and almost every aspect that we can. And it will probably take a week, but we're going to try and do it in an hour. Chantelle, I wonder, could you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do and your passion for chocolate? Uh, and then we'll move on to Marcus and then Sophie. Um, hi, Arthur, and thank you so much for inviting me. So my love of chocolate goes back to my childhood, and I think that's probably pretty common with most people in the world. I suppose as I grew up and I became a bit more knowledgeable and a bit more sophisticated, which was through having a job in Harrods Chocolate Department when I was a student, which was a real eye-opener, to when I opened my shop on the King's Road Rococo Chocolates in 1983. It's been a really amazing journey and learning all the time, and I'm still learning every day. And my new incarnation is as the chocolate detective. So I'm shining a light on important chocolate issues and I'm working very closely with the Grenada Chocolate Company who are very dear to my heart and I'm sure we'll be talking about them later but they are actually the first tree to bar chocolate makers this century who spawned that whole movement which um, everyone knows about now. Thank you Chantel. Uh, Marcos? Hello, uh, I'm a medical herbalist uh, in uh, working in London, and um, I think my, my my interest in chocolate really comes from. Well, first of all, I'm I'm, I'm a bit of a chocoholic, so there's that, uh, and then, then uh, secondly, it, well, there's a couple of different angles. One would be just uh, it was a book I read uh, written in the 80s, I think, by this ethnobotanist called Jonathan Ott, uh, called Chocolate Addict, which was an amazing little book. It's kind of hard to get hold of now where he sort of went into the ancient history of cacao and my, my interest as a herbalist is really in the the ancient origins of of um, plants and i'm particularly interested in in psychoactive plants that's mind altering plants but not really the 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 you know the nuclear powered sort of you know super powerful ayahuasca level crazy strong ones but the subtle ones that are part of our everyday life like um coffee or tea or chocolate and chocolate was my favorite so that was that was an obvious one so that book really inspired me when i finished my uh, degree i immediately started researching it and that was in 2005 and uh 15 years later I, I have a book so so that's if I probably if I'd have realized it was going to take that long I, I might never have never have begun so um I, I guess I guess that tells you a little bit about where where I'm coming from a good start thank you okay. Sophie uh, hello um actually uh, I'm from Belgium and I uh, reached Mexico in 99 coming from Belgium you know I was born in chocolate <laughs> I've always been eating chocolate and I'm always breathing like chocolate. So um, actually in 99, I came to Mexico for some internship. I was actually working with street kids 
And then um, actually I realized that there were no, I don't like the word gourmet chocolate, but let's say fine chocolate by that time. And at the end of the day, what I did is I launched a little uh, workshop about, you know, making these bonbons and stuff um, because I, I got a, a preparation from a relative. And since then, since 2003, uh, we're actually making chocolate here. I mean, we're working chocolate, which is different. I'm a chocolatier. And for now, few years, so 2016, we began to play with Mexican fine cocoa. Uh, here in Mexico, so I'm actually a chocolatier, which is which means that I began, you know, like at the end of the of the tunnel. <laughs> then I went back to making chocolate, so I'm a chocolate maker now. At the same time, and I'm also a chocolate taster. So you can say, oh yeah, that's so nice, you know, uh, tasting chocolate is such a nice job. Yes, it is. Uh, just remind that the two perspective. Let's say one is look for defects and how to improve the chocolate. And the other one is looking for virtue. And that's a pleasure. So both of them are a pleasure. It's just that these are the two sides of the same, uh, the same activity, you know. So very roughly, this is uh, what I'm doing. Thank you, Sophie. Already it sounds that uh, all of you have this sort of passion for, for chocolate. Uh, and, and, and I do too, and I think a lot of people that I know have a passion for chocolate. I wonder if we could start, uh, maybe Chantal you could start and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of open up this discussion. Uh, but chocolate is one thing, but it comes from cocoa and, and should we discuss what cocoa is and how it becomes chocolate? I think that's a great place to start. Well, one of the brilliant bits of news no one had heard this already, is it's a fruit. So it's technically one of your five a day. But seriously, it's a tropical fruit that grows on the cocoa tree. It's about the size of a small rugby ball. Um, so the pod, which is a thick pod, a bit like a, a melon, contains the fruit, which is a mucilaginous fruit, um, a bit like a lychee, which wraps around the seed. And that fruit is, is absolutely delicious if you ever get a chance to taste it. It um, has a flavour profile of sort of green apples, a bit of lychee, a bit of passion fruit, a bit of other tropical fruits going on. The inside, black seed, which is the kind of shiny thing, traditionally would have been spat out by the monkeys and it would have then grown into a, another tree. But at some point, and I think Marcus can help us on this bit, someone discovered that if you dry it and roast it or ferment it first, actually fermentation is a really, really important stage, then that will result in something which actually tastes chocolatey. And then there are many, many more stages which take you from that, that seed or um, bean to the bar. Because that's what you, in, in your opening description of yourself, is there's, there's the tree to bar concept. I've never really heard that before, Chantal, but it's interesting. So you are talking from tree to the bar and the processes that have that, that cocoa bean has to go through to become a bar, uh, like you say, is huge. And it has to travel a long way because is chocolate consumed in the places that it grows or is chocolate very much a Western uh, treat that we then consume and use from, from the sort of chocolate fields of the world? Well, in the form that we know it here in Europe and America, as in a block of chocolate, a tablet, 
that is very much something that's been invented in the last 150 years. But before that, and if you go back to the pre-Columbian times, and this is, again, Marcos can, can fill in better than me, but it was a drinking drinking chocolate, which was, mm. it tasted chocolatey, I'm sure, but a very different kind of format, very fatty because the cocoa butter that's naturally present um, would have been floating on the top. And nowadays people go through some quite nasty chemical processes to take the fat out of cocoa called dutching. It's a little bit like you could compare it to wine. So you, you can start off with the grape and um, from there you you take the grapes, you squeeze the juice out of them and with cocoa you ferment it. You allow all these complex flavours to develop over a period of a few days and hopefully turning the cocoa at the same time. So this is there are a lot of different opinions on whether or not you should ferment it at all or for how long. But personally, I think a, a six-day fermentation, which is effectively three two-day fermentations, will bring out the optimum flavour, particularly of the beans that I'm using in Grenada. And then from there on, the beans need to be carefully dried. You need to make sure they don't get mouldy after that. Um, you've got the roasting again that will deliver a particular flavor profile and then you've got the grinding and the refining so each stage can be done very well or not so well and each stage will contribute towards the end result wow we are talking complex so you know from these these bars on the british shelves all the way back to the origin um we're talking i mean is a, is a bar of chocolate in a let's say a, um, a corner shop uh, we won't mention any names. I mean, how far removed from, from cocoa actually is it? I mean, is, is it really a good example of chocolate or are they really just bars of sugar? Well, personally, I would prefer to call that confectionery. I think Confection. if, sugar, if sugar's the first thing on the ingredient list, it's not really chocolate. Right. I don't I don't get into slanging match. <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, that's but good. Well, we need to set these, these things um, you know, out. It's yeah. an industrial product the price and the ingredients will tell you most of what you need to know. Very good. And so you have a passion. Uh, you know, Chantal, I love this. You know, almost everybody says, oh, I had a, an early relationship with chocolate. Um, and sometimes a lot of people have this early relationship with confectionery. But, but chocolate in itself is, is such an amazing product, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's euphoric. It's healthy. I mean, if you're eating dark chocolate, it's good for your heart. It empowers your blood. Uh, you know, and, the, and there are you know, perhaps aphrodisiac qualities. We can come to Marcos and talk about this in a minute. But you know, we're talking about a, a, a vast storyline. From something that as children we just went, I like chocolate. There's something magical about chocolate, isn't there? That it just engages you and draws you in and you sort of say, I love this. Absolutely. And I mean, certainly one part of that is the sweetness. And if it's milk chocolate, the creaminess, then there's that melting, wonderful sensation in the mouth. So it's a very sensual thing to eat. And I think that automatically transports people to um, a place which is, you know, you're feeling it rather than thinking about it. So we're, we're sort of setting the, the, the scene. We've got what is cocoa and how does it become chocolate? We know that it's magic and it goes through so many different processes. It, cocoa seems to have a, a deep and rich history in South America. And Sophie, you found yourself in South America. Uh, and have you come across this sort of depth of passion from the, the South Americans, the Mexicans, for cacao? Or, or are you sort of helping to reignite their passion for it? Or what's the cultural identity of cacao in communities and society in South America? 
uh, actually in Mexico, Mexico is considered like, you know, the cuddle of, of cocoa in South America. Well, the different version, but to make it easier is the first place where cocoa was domesticated. And actually I was so pleased to listen to Chantal about saying, you know, you're eating chocolate, but actually you're feeling. What I mean is here in Mexico, every single one, uh, when they're having a hot uh, chocolate in the morning or at night, they remember their grandfather, their grandmother, their mother, their aunts, you know, everyone who's actually preparing that because it's a very cultural um, issue here. What I mean is that, you know, when you're going to communities, um, they have lots of different pre-Hispanic um, drinks which are just fabulous. I mean, you have like pinole, tejate, pozole, all this, you know, all these kind of drinks that you couldn't imagine in Europe because a lot of them have, for example, uh, maize. And uh, this is not such a flavor we used to in Europe, but actually in Mexico, first the chocolate is drunk. And then for a few years now, I mean, they, they, they used to have some chocolate here, but like, you know, industrial chocolate. For a few years now, let's say five to 10, they're beginning with some bean to bar process. Bean to bar, of course, all the chocolate is made out of a bean. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a surprise. But what they're doing now is that, they, you know, as we're doing also, I mean, I'm buying straight to the cocoa producer and then we are making the bar with some fine uh, cocoa, you know, cocoa which are more aromatic. So the idea here is actually to use a very, very small quantity of sugar so that you can really um, enjoy the real taste of the cocoa. Um, you have different types of cocoa and um, in Mexico is supposed to be a fine cocoa chocolate. So means that you, there's no bad cocoa anywhere. You only have bad processes. As Chantal was explaining, uh, you can ferment or not. Uh, actually, Mexico is supposed to have like 40% of unfermented cocoa, which is used for chocolate de mesa, so for the drinking chocolate. So, you know, it's, it's a whole cultural, this whole, the, the chocolate is the moment you're actually sharing with your family. So it's a very, very central, let's say, a drink, but also an ingredient because they're using it for mole, which is one of the most uh, representative dish in Mexico. So it's, it's really, it's amazing to see now how there's a boom. So people, some, a lot of people just drop cultivating cocoa because it's a very tough job. Uh, when, when, if you can come to Mexico one day, I'll, I'll bring you there all. <laughs> Hopefully we could come, do this yeah. program here, you know. And, you know, it's hot, it's wet, you have a lot of mosquitoes. So it's a really tough job, actually. And right now we have a lot of floods here. So it's, it's very complicated, actually, because when they say, okay, it costs so much, and people say, no, and, you know, they're kind of negotiating and... And I feel so bad sometimes because right now, besides of the floods, the problems are, the flood in itself is not a problem. The problem is going to be afterwards. And I'm sure that Marcos will be able to uh, talk a bit more about that because there's a lot of uh, fungus, a lot of spores and stuff like that, which are going to destroy your cocoa. But worse in Mexico right now are thieves. So, I mean, I just called some cocoa producer last week and they said, no, you have no idea how we are they're robbing cocoa from all the plantations and this is very frustrating because when you're doing a tree to bar 
you have the full control, as Chantal is doing with the Grenada Chocolate Company, from the tree to the bar. But when you have the plantation and, you know, you've just been robbed, if you don't know where to buy and you buy to intermediate, you can have a coyote, means someone which is just trading cocoa and you have no traceability. I think traceability is real, the only real solution to that problem. If you do buy and you know where it's coming from and you can prove it, there's no reason to have these kind of problems. We're talking about a huge problem. I mean, it's really getting critical here. It's estimated by the cocoa producer that they're going to lose 50 to 60% of the crops in different areas. I mean, in one of them is the main producing area in Mexico, in Comalcalco and in Tabasco. But um, also we have to see now if they're going to have some, you know, flowers on the trees for December, because no flower, no cocoa by May. So, Sophie, it's really interesting that as you talk, it's very apparent that, that chocolate or cacao is is a connector. It, it's about the, the social structure. It's about sharing. Um, can you talk a little bit about anything that you know of the celebrations that cacao was used in the earlier days in Mexico and South America? Because I've heard, but don't really know many stories, that cacao was a celebratory drink that you took at festivals or maybe marriages or what do you know of the sort of the history of celebration of cacao before it became this sort of European chocolate? Sure, actually it was always like a ritual. So means that, uh, you know, uh, there was a baby born, uh, you know, there was a marriage or they were asking for the hand of a lady, uh, someone died or you're going to organize, you know, the, uh, the planting of different crops. You're always using cacao. So means, uh, you know, if you want to ask someone to be the uh, godfather of the child who's just born, uh, you're going to use cacao. And still in some communities, actually, they do it. I was actually giving some courses online uh, since, of course, the situation we're living. What happens is you, you're always learning from, from all the people you're actually meeting. So there was a lady there, she's from Campeche, and she told me, you know, it's quite funny because here in, in province, you know, in La Sierra, they still use cocoa to go to the house of the future, uh, you know, the lady you want to get married to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're coming with cocoa. You still do it. And I say, wow, I have to be careful. <laughs> if someone's going to be with some cocoa, I have to think about twice, you know. <laughs> exactly. Oh, literally, literally. But uh, they're actually trying to uh, get back some of the, uh, I mean, they, they, they actually now a uh, huge interest in these ancient drinkings right now in Mexico. There's a lot of moves on that side. There's some books that have been published on that side. And uh, it's very interesting because a lot of people in the cities, they, they don't know them or they have never tasted them. And you're just like, but you're Mexican, you know? I mean, this is quite strange. So they say, but you know more. I, I, it's not that I know more. I've just been traveling and I love traveling and I love tasting and I love sharing. So that's how you actually discover this whole uh, chocolate culture. Marcus, if I could bring you in here, because you know Sophie's really painted this picture that cacao is something that they use, um, that, the, that the South Americans use to celebrate. And a celebration can be a, a gathering of people, a sort of social and cultural environment, which tends to build histories. It builds society. Uh, and so uh, in your experience and knowledge of sort of ancient plants and, and ancient history, uh, perhaps of, of cacao too, how do you place that as an important sort of social structure builder? I mean, 
I, I've I've done a in, in researching the book. I, d- I did a few a few uh, field trips to Mexico and interviewed a lot of people. And a lot of the beverages that Sophie was just talking about there were really really important. Like all these traditional beverages that now are usually atoles, like maize based drinks, which feature cacao or cocoa in one one way or another. So you've got I think Sophie mentioned tejate. You've got bupu. You've got popo. You've got various different beverages that. And they all have these ancient roots. So they give us some clues as to, as to the likely structure of the pre-Hispanic drinks. Because I think both Sophie and Chantal alluded to the fact that what we think of as chocolate now is really the tip of an iceberg. And the vast majority of chocolate's probably 10,000 year long history of involvement with mankind was pre-Columbian. If, if the Europeans only came to Mexico in 1520 whatever it was 1523 1525 i can't remember the exact date um but if they came then that the, the previous few thousand years were development yes it was a long time yeah, <laughs> so long so time, yeah. in in term, to to get round to answering your question it, it was certainly used as as sophie was saying as in celebrations it seems to be in all important threshold events both secular and sacred really so uh, marriages funerals birth deaths contracts so contracts and thresholds were the main associations of cacao in addition to being drunk for pleasure and in, in pre-columbian times it seems that part of its use was partly geographically determined as well as historically determined what i mean by that is in parts of Central America where cacao originates or where the kind of cacao that is used for making the finest chocolates in the world, which is Criollo cacao, the cultivar that was developed in Central America, we now think maybe 10,000 BC, maybe even earlier. We we don't know exactly when, but it's thought that the latest thinking is that the original sort of variant was brought up from South America, probably from Ecuador, and then developed there. And this particular cultivar was developed for use and its its main use was in these sort of secular ceremonies. And in parts of the, the, the country where it grows naturally, which are sort of very humid, rainforesty, tropical parts, because uh, cacao requires, it's a very fussy plant. It requires high humidity. The temperature can't drop below, I think it's 18 degrees Celsius or it'll die. Um, it requires shade. It, it, it's, its roots um, require a particular fungal environment. It's got a micro, mycorrhizal arrangement where its roots require the particular fungi in the soil. Anyway, so the, the long and the short of it is some parts of the country, like modern day, I think Sophie mentioned it, Tabasco, and the, the other side, the western coast, uh, which used to be called, and I think still is, the Soconusco, which is uh, the part of southern Mexico called called Chiapas, and part of Guatemala and parts of Honduras on that western coast. Those provide the perfect climate to grow it. So peoples who inhabited those areas uh, would be would have been able to grow cacao, and and everyday people would have been able to drink beverages made from it. So it would have formed much more of a part of daily life. But the, you know, the famous Aztec or Mexica Empire just before the conquest, because that was based in central Mexico, where Mexico City is now, where it's arid and dry, they wouldn't have been able to um, to get access to it as easily. So that's why for them, it was a very, very high status drink and it was only consumed by the nobility and if a commoner drank it, they they would be they would be I think stoned to death. They would it was capital punishment for the for the common man to drink beverages made from cacao because it was it had to be brought by 
on foot because they had no horses and they did invent the wheel actually they did have the, they had wheeled toys this is one of the many interesting historical facts about central america they they developed the wheel they had wheeled toys but they just never created probably because they had no draft animals that were mm. good enough you know so they, they had to bring cacao in long overland caravans um, it, I've, I've drifted it, off the point, I think. Not at all, not at all, Marcus, and it's all completely relevant. What's interesting about cacao is it is that, you know, we're making a point that nearly two-thirds of the work of, of chocolate making happens in the plantation. Um, you know, it, it, it's very geographical. If you want to have chocolate away from the area that it's growing in, you have to move it and sometimes move it a long way. So there's a lot of effort inside chocolate, which obviously creates a price uh, yes. and, and a cost and I wonder, Chantal, in your experience of, of, of chocolate from, from the European perspective, it, it started arriving on our shores, perhaps we uh, used it in different ways. Can, can you say that, the, so we had the South American influence, it was then, you know, chocolate began to appear in Europe. Was there a high price on it? Was it good quality? And how did we absorb it culturally? When uh, chocolate first arrived, or cocoa first arrived in Europe, it was definitely through the Spanish and the Spanish courts and also the religious orders. It was actually about a hundred years until it started through various royal marriages going into France and then during the, the Reformation it came to England. So we're talking 1660 in England with the coronation of Charles II and this is after the, the terrible Cromwell um, interregnum. And at that time, cocoa was definitely a drink, and it was absolutely only for the very, very wealthiest. It would have been members of the the royal courts, the actual heads of state themselves, and their entourage. And it was very heavily taxed as well. So at that point, there wasn't a huge quantity coming into the country. And what did come in was pretty good quality, I, I think. At that time, there was there was fraud going on. This seems to be a story which is it continues through the timeline from back to pre-Columbian times, where people would hollow out a, a cocoa shell and fill it with dirt because in those days it was actually used as a currency. When it came to London, there were warnings about adulteration with brick dust and things. So we we know about adulteration in our food now. It's not quite as crude as that, but it may be the addition of some other things which shouldn't really be present, like an excess of sugar. And there's there's a complicated history with the sugar as well, because obviously that was a very, very big part of the wealth of this country and based on slavery. So we, we've got to ask some, some quite searching questions about that. But um, to fast track forward, in around 1850, the tax dropped very dramatically. So from two shillings in a pound, as in a pound of chocolate, it went down to one penny. So it's one twenty-fourth, suddenly the drop. And at that time, it was then affordable. Mm. I'm interested, if I can just quickly shift across to Marcus, because cacao, you know, if you'd never taken it before, and then you take it in a, a sort of an amazingly produced hot drink, uh, <laughs> it must be on the mind and the body quite a a, a euphoric experience, a real lift up. Would, would that 
that would be the experience i think that's fair yes i mean if you i mean i'm sure both uh, certainly sophie and i know i know i'm I'm sure chantal's well i know you both will have had um traditional mexican style drinking chocolate where the beans are just toasted shelled ground on the metate or ground um you know by hand and then just mixed with hot water sometimes with sugar sometimes with spices in mexico today it's usually cinnamon or canela that they add but um, traditionally, it could have been vanilla, it could have been anato or achiote or any number of other spices. But yes, the actual the drinks made from just cacao beans and hot water, and usually in in Central America, any one of a number of native plants, sometimes foaming agents, different flowers, whatever, they are very, very strong. Um, yeah. Strong in the sense of, of of a cup of coffee, but maybe a bit stronger and certainly different. And to my mind, certainly more euphoric, but it's, it's partly character dependent. Some people really notice it. Like I am one of the people who chocolate strongly affects. Like if I have a really good, strong cup of chocolate, I feel like a different person. <laughs> it's, mm. it's like, I feel great. I have, but I have friends who perhaps, and I think my, my hypothesis at this point is it just depends on your your temperament, or one might rephrase that in more modern terms, in terms of your neurochemistry, in terms of your basic brain chemistry. And I think I have a slightly, slightly more depressive temperament. So for me, just that pick up from the baseline is so much more noticeable. Whereas for those people who have a more upbeat, uh, traditionally in, in, in medieval medicine, it would have been called sanguined temperament, you know, the sanguine types, we still use that as a descriptor, as a, as a descriptor, as an adjective now to say someone is, is sanguine. If someone has a more sanguine temperament, then it, it they might not notice so much. Hmm. But I, I, I think it's it's very, very noticeable. And it's very noticeable when you're tired as well. Um, and the effect is quite strong, and certainly much stronger than um, than eating chocolate. Really good quality dark eating chocolate is amazing. So I'm not going to diss it. But I often, to me now, like having proper drinking chocolate made from beans, that to me is is the real thing. And eating chocolate is my methadone. Having said that, I do <laughs> I do like good quality eating chocolate too. So, so there's there's no there's no diss on that. That's that's a beautiful thing because it's a whole different art. The art of the modern chocolatier is. There's a whole other level of processes that go into that that will reduce the pharmacological potency of the product and mm. will probably reduce its health. Well, certainly reduce its health giving effects because you add some extra fat and you add a bit of sugar. And there's this whole long process of conching whereby the which is literally just beating the beans in large, uh, usually granite, but sometimes uh, ceramic or whatever, long troughs with with rollers to achieve that very, very small particle size so that it has the good mouth feel. So it just melts on the tongue. Obviously, that process causes an additional loss of some of the quote unquote beneficial constituents like the antioxidant polyphenols and some of the volatiles, but it smooths the texture and improves the flavor. So this is none of this is to diss eating chocolate because it's an amazing, beautiful, wonderful product that we would all be massively our lives would be qualitatively impoverished without. But <laughs> the traditional the traditional drinks are, I would say, an order of magnitude more potent. Yes. Yeah. So it, we've made it to 1850. The taxes have been dropped. Chocolate is arriving in the UK. Uh, Europe has had chocolate in for uh, about 200 years. But it does seem, though, that uh, although um, sugar was a, was a, a thing that was used to, to support the slavery, the issues that we had with um, the African slaves heading to America to produce sugar, tobacco, potentially coffee, and also chocolate, 
But all of the discussion today has been about the effort that it requires to get cacao to wherever it needs to go. And Sophie, I wonder if you could help us paint a picture, because at the moment we've got, it, it has to be hot, it's going to be moist, we've got mosquitoes, we've got floods, half of the three quarters of the work is done in the plantation. Who works on these chocolate plantations? Uh, are they paid a fair price now? And what has been the experience of, of people working, and not just in Mexico, but I know that, that cacao is now grown in Africa as well. What's the, um, what are the issues that people face on cacao plantations? Uh, well, first in Mexico, you have the security problem. Uh, so means that secure and security is everywhere, unfortunately, and uh, cocoa producer go through that too. So um, that's a huge point that is not, you know, considered sometimes. There was there was some um, some cocoa producer assassinated and stuff like that. Terrible things, very terrible. Uh, a few years ago, and you know we're not out of that. But it's a general problem in Mexico, but it's touching the cocoa produ producers too. Actually, in Mexico, you have a lot of little plantation which are family plantation, and the kids are helping. I don't say there's, there's no slaves here, but it's smaller plantation. We're not talking about the same model as in Africa. I haven't met anyone touching the issue here because I won't say it's irrelevant. Of course, it, it is completely relevant. Unfortunately, it's definitely too too much relevant. That the, I mean, we're in the, the 20, 21st century and we still have that problem. This is such a shame. But from from... The Latin American side, I would. My feeling is that if there is, and there might be, it's it should be shut. I mean, you know, um, it should be it should be lower. You know, just to connect to what Marcus was saying. I'm sorry to deviate the issue. Not at all. Please. please. Um, actually, when you were saying that, when you you know having chocolate and you feel like this and like that, you know, in Mexico you have the ceremonial cacao. And that's very interesting because, uh, I mean, we're working now with some, I don't know if you can call them shaman or call them, better said, uh, people doing ceremony with cacao. It's not cocoa ceremony, it's with cacao. It's quite funny because we are making two type of of this of this cocoa preparation and it's a paste so some are using them with some flowers with some spices as we we're mentioning and so on but on a different level not for the taste and uh, it's quite funky because one of the criollo that we're having i tasted it with a friend and you know you feel really centered and relaxed and it's really impressive it's like having a tea you know you just make your moments and it's absolutely great but if you're in a bad mood because once i mean i'm not a, i'm not a bad mood person you know <laughs> i think pe chocolate people are not yeah. um but if you're having a trinitario that i made the mistake one day i was a bit accelerated and i didn't have it properly and i have it in you know different steps instead of having once i frankly got hysterical for three hours I was so agitated, I was feeling so bad. I mean, chocolate is absolutely not a drug. But anyway, that was a bit, you know, funky about that. But anyway, that was a bit deviating from what you were asking me. So on the slave side, 
Well, Sophie, I wasn't asking so much about slaves. I mean, I was saying that, you know, obviously during the sort of explosion of the Americas, everything coming across to Europe, you know, a lot of a lot of people were toing and froing, and a lot of people sure. taking advantage of. Uh, I'm just wondering now, because I think we maybe have to demystify some of the conversations that people have about uh, sure. fair trade. Uh, what, uh, what is fair trade chocolate? What, you know, are people treated fairly? Is there the right money being paid to the people uh, who are dear. producing cacao? I mean, I think because people listening are going to want to know, well, if I'm eating a, a luxury bar of chocolate, is it just me who's experienced a luxury or is the full chain of cacao in luxury hmm. or are there, there, there issues that we need to know about? Sure, uh, that's a very good question. Actually, if you consider that in Mexico, unfermented cacao is supposed to be around, let's say, from two to four dollars, depending on the, on the harvest. When you're talking about fine cocoa, you're talking from at very low four up to fifteen dollars. I mean, fifteen being one special plantation here. So the problem is that when you're talking about fair, because they say, oh, you know, it's a fair trade, and oh, let's take that. I mean, they have like three or four dollars a day. Do they really? Are really? Are they really happy to have four or five dollars a day in the pocket? Hmm. I mean, who are we to consider it's fair or not? I mean, tell me it's a joke. So in that sense, I mean, I'm working with the cocoa producer direct. There's no intermediate, of course. They send it to me here in Mexico City. So I think we have to replant that idea and really think about, okay, oh, he has, he's having five. It's more than the, you know, than the middle uh, wage or a low wage or whatever. Okay, who are you to say that? So it just have some water. It just have something, something to eat, which is already not so bad. And this is too bad to be sufficient. So, I mean, we talk about fair, mean it's sufficient, they just can survive. Sorry, Chantal, what's your opinion on, on, on fair trade chocolate? Because it has been in the news and people are always a little unsure about whether it's correct or not. Uh, what's your experience of fair trade? Or, or, or am I, I don't want to maybe use, because it's almost a brand, isn't it, fair trade? Well, but, it's but, a, absolutely, it's a brand. Yeah. And what's more, it's a body that certifies um, cocoa and chocolate makers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it actually effectively is a gravy train where they're mm. making money through all of these bits of paperwork which they issue mm. and the premiums which they pay, um, if you translate it into how much gets back to the actual cocoa farmers, it's very, very little. It may be $10 a year or something like that. I, I need to check that but I, mm. I know that the irony is that I mean it's obviously economics at the bottom of the chain when you sell something you know say you sell it for one pound someone at the end of the chain might sell it for ten pounds so out of all of the people in this country the VAT customs and excise will probably make the biggest margin and um, the fair trade will make something the usually the supermarkets where most people buy their chocolate from will be making a big margin so actually it's very very difficult to make sure that the cocoa farmers are paid properly and that's why when I talked at the beginning about tree to bar this is about an absolute role model company Grenada chocolate company is actually working directly with the farmers paying them more than the normal price to produce the cocoa and everyone working in that little cocoa microeconomy is getting paid far more than they would if they were being paid at the normal rates in that place. So that, again, if you translate it to the end of the line, that bar of chocolate 
if you were to buy it here will cost you about seven pounds and most people mm. say well why should I pay seven pounds when I can pay one pound which is a, it's a good question but the answer is it's about not only paying the right price but it's about paying for each stage and going right back to the beginning and this is a tiny batch um, it's not made on an industrial scale so it's chalk and cheese really yeah well what's uh, so apparent is that cacao goes through so many stages and, and Marcus if I can now bring you in here because we've had it uh, grown it's uh, connected to the soil there's been mycorrhizal fungal activity there's even fungus on the on the outside of the shells once they've grown it's been ground it's been shipped but now we have chocolate you know, from, from a sort of a medical herbalist perspective or, or someone who really understands perhaps the history or origins of chocolate, now that we have it, let's say, in Europe, what's the experience of it and, and what does it do for us? I mean, is, is chocolate actually good for us? Yeah, yeah that's a, 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 very, a very good question, Arthur, and a very involved one. Yes, it is, is the short answer. It definitely is. There are several qualifiers to that. The first thing is that no one substance there's no such thing as a panacea no substance is universally good for everyone there are going to be some few very few unfortunate people who are allergic to chocolate a lot of people who think they are sensitive to chocolate actually may not be at least according to the sort of recent research in migraine where they found that a lot of people who thought their migraines were triggered by chocolate when they actually researched it turned out they weren't but there are some people who, who don't get on with it unfortunately that's true uh, there are some conditions which it can aggravate like uh, one of the common ones and this was this, uh, the book went through seven proofreadings and it was only after publication of course now it's published I keep spotting little things that I've missed <laughs> out or whatever it's like god's sake it's an 800 page book and I missed this out you know but uh, one of the things was um, heartburn it can aggravate heartburn I put a whole list of things it's contraindicated for and that mm. that would be one of the top things so like coffee like peppermint chocolate is one of the things that can aggravate heartburn if people have severe reflux disease and th there are other things that it might be problematic in but in general chocolate is very very good it's particularly good I think you, you referred to this briefly in passing earlier for um, the vast majority of research in, in laboratory, in humans, and unfortunately in, in animals, just because animal testing is cheap. But uh, the vast majority of, of research shows that chocolate is very, very good uh, for cardiovascular disease prevention, for heart attack and stroke prevention. We've got big epidemiological population surveys showing that big reduction in relative risk of heart disease and stroke for the people who consume the most chocolate. And it's also useful potentially for um, dementia, uh, particularly vascular dementia, but also possibly other forms of dementia. It may also be useful for prevention of certain types of cancer. It's, um, I mean, there's a whole list of things it's good for, mm. but the biggest killer in the West, it kills one third of people, literally one third of the humans on the planet, I think. I think that's around the number, die of cardiovascular disease. Chocolate is a huge, so that's, that's number, number one. But the, the second qualifier, that, so the first qualifier I mentioned is no such thing. There's no such thing as a panacea, but chocolate or cacao is very good for a large number of people in terms of its health effects. But number two would the second qualifier would be it really depends. And I think both Chantal and Sophie have alluded to this on the quality of the chocolate. If you're having dark chocolate with a significant proportion of actual cacao or cocoa, the actual bean in the bar, then you're going to be getting medicinal 
benefits. But if you're if you're getting um, a, a, a rather a rather less carefully produced uh, chocolate bar yeah. or one where where perhaps they've they've um, budgeted a bit more, shall we say? That's probably a, a nice way of saying it. Then then you're going to lose out on that. And certainly, white chocolate is, although a, a very delicious confection, is is not doesn't have any of the health benefits because most of the research is focused on the brown stuff, the polyphenols that the bean contains. But it does also contain a lot of other little constituents, some of which I think are very under-researched and equally interesting. And it'll be really interesting to see what emerges from the sort of pharmacological tinkering and filleting that's going on now over the next couple of decades, I think. Now, in some of the restaurants I've worked in, I've always tried to make the dessert something that... Um, you know, the dining couple can can take mm. back home with them as a kind of stimulant, and, and certainly chocolate always makes. Oh, can you can we can you make me something that's going to make you feel a bit sexy? And chocolate <laughs> is always this kind of well, yeah. Well, let me make you a chocolate tart. Uh, and so, yes. is is chocolate an aphrodisiac? Is it something that, that lifts the libido, or, or certainly it, it I, perhaps have mental well, qualities? Well, that, that that is that is the interesting question. I think it is because this yeah. is something that that this is one of the things I mentioned. Jonathan Ott's book that inspired me when when I read it in in, in the late 90s when, when I was an art student actually before I even started studying herbal medicine and in this book which is such a wonderful book he does two things that really made me think just instinctively no I don't believe that one of the things he said was the action of of, of chocolate it's pure action on the mind is, is all down to theobromine it's just theobromine which is a relative of caffeine it's the main cacao co cocoa also contains a bit of caffeine but he says it's all down to theobromine and it's its reputation as an aphrodisiac is dependent on that because one of the effects of theobromine is it makes the heart beat a bit faster and i just thought that's sort of assuming that you know mm. 3000 years of medical history and personal experience you know everyone was just deluded Anyway, so when I went into the book, I mean, I thought maybe he's right, whatever, went into the book. And obviously there's the research on the polyphenols is pretty solid. We know one of the effects of eating really good quality chocolate within 20 minutes or so, the polyphenols, and they peak in the bloodstream after two hours. So it starts within 20 minutes, but it's a peak effect after two hours. They're vasodilators. They dilate blood vessels. And this has been measured in the blood vessels in the arm and in the brain. So it delivers more blood everywhere. Well, obviously that might have something to to do with some of its wow. aphrodisiac reputation because it actually improves circulation but then there's the 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 mental effects and i would i would slightly disagree with with what sophie said earlier about it c c chocolate not being a drug i know i know what you mean sophie though because it's not a drug you know, the, the word drug <laughs> has such negative drug, connotations yeah. Sure. Yeah. Negative. yeah but but i think it, it certainly affects the mind and and, yes. and that's you know that that it so i would say there are there are certainly differences in substances that affect the mind and chocolate is is almost entirely benevolent it's not something which which we know to be addictive but it certainly affects the brain chemistry and some of what i call the fairy dust compounds in in cocoa beans these like the tiny amounts of phenethylamine the tiny amount of anandamide phenethylamine is a pleasure an excitement neurotransmitter anandamide is this little cannabinoid that makes you relax but there are tiny amounts in the bean and researchers have said well they're too small to do anything but when you actually look at the chemistry you find that some of the polyphenols stop that slow down the breakdown of phenethylamine there are some other compounds in there called the linoloyl ethanolamines that difficult to say linoloyl ethanolamines that slow down the breakdown of anandamide so the short answer is we don't know exactly 
what the long-term or even short-term effects on, on brain chemistry are, but it looks like from various different bits of research, when you collate them all, that it does seem to raise central serotonin, which makes mm. you feel more happy and relaxed. And it does also seem to alter mood. I, I call it a hedonic modifier. That's the phrase I use for cacao or chocolate. So it's not a blatant full-on stimulant. It doesn't make you high in a full-on way. It's not like doing cocaine or something, but it does modify the pleasure circuitry in the brain in various ways uh, through various neurotransmitters uh, like nitric oxide, which the polyphenols work on. That's how they dilate blood vessels in the brain. That nitric oxide modifies opiate signaling in the brain. I could go on and on, but the, the, the point is cacao may imp act as an aphrodisiac, at least potentially in, I think, two main ways. One is by improving the circulation and the other mm. is by altering the brain chemistry to change pleasure responses, just to make them a little bit, little bit like lubricating that pleasure circuitry in the brain. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and Chantal, when we look at this sort of um, the, the brain as it's triggered, uh, you know, you have these wonderful experiences of perhaps comfort, perhaps luxury, perhaps opulence. Uh, and I know that when, uh, as you sort of have created these amazing chocolate brands or understood chocolate for something that's perhaps people like to build into their lives as sort of luxury and comfort, how did you uh, strike upon the right way to bring chocolate into people's lives and make them feel like they needed it and, and were comforted by it? I, when I started um, my business, which was very shortly after I'd left my job selling chocolate and graduated from my arts degree the world was a very different place at that time anyone who watches are you being served would be familiar with the kind of ethos of customer yeah. service which right. was really present i just felt there was kind of emotional interaction that was not taking place because i could see how excited i mean i knew how excited i was about chocolate and the customers buying the chocolate were feeling like that too but they were being served by someone who was absolutely po-faced and you know just couldn't wait to finish serving them and be able to gossip with their colleague again it was you know struck me as the magic bit was missing and that's what made me want to open my my shop but I was doing that from a very naive standpoint because in a way I was creating an environment which didn't exist it was a a new business model where the consumer was at the heart and the magic and the theatricality and all of those things. Um, and it was a, you know, great adventure. And of course, I, you know, didn't know as much as I know now. Um, and it was amazing just to see people coming in and getting so excited and to, to make them feel that it was okay to be treating themselves to something like chocolate because there's also in, in this country and I think it's true in all the sort of Protestant places a kind of ethos that chocolate is a bit sinful mm -hmm. and I think you know that's that's probably a lot of that actually is to do with the sugar and that addictive quality of sugary things so I think there's a whole other piece about educating people and making them feel good and comfortable about eating a small amount of something very very good 
uh, so we're looking at, at luxury or quality. So what then now? I mean, if we if we fast forward, I mean, we've we've, we've done some of the history. We understand how it's made, or we've, we've we've done as much as we can to understand how it's made. It's now in our lives, uh, and chocolate is more or less everywhere. You can walk into pretty much every shop, whether it's a, a petrol station or a, a very high end, um, luxurious uh, food food shop, and, and chocolate's everywhere. What is it that we need to do as consumers in our lives to, to support the chocolate industry, make it fairer, make it more um, apparent that it needs support or at least understanding? Uh, your point, Chantelle, about education is an important one. Uh, what is it that we need to be doing now and into the future to make chocolate, well, well to keep chocolate on our shelves? Because I know we're going to have some issues. Maybe we can come to Sophie in a minute and talk about the issues we're facing in, in the chocolate plantations, but and the cacao plantations. What is it that we should be thinking about doing as consumers of chocolate to support better chocolate making? I think when the first thing is to be asking lots of questions, to be reading the wrapper, to be doing the maths to see, you know, is this, how much of this, one pound would be going back to the cocoa farmers so i think the consumer now is increasingly powerful and in a way we we need to break down the old edifices and ways of doing business and we need to build a new chocolate business starting from the roots back to the cocoa farmers yeah it's, it's important i mean consumers are uh, now being given more and more information about what it is they are consuming um, but I think chocolate, is, it's been such a grey area uh, that people have never quite known. Everyone knows that they've got their favourite chocolate and they'll always go back to that and they don't deviate too much. But I think it is important to understand how chocolate is bought. And I know that there are huge chocolate middlemen, if that's a, a word I can use. What is it that we need to do to either pressure the middlemen into giving a fairer price or, or adding value, like you say, to the chain, starting from the roots? Because I think there needs to be some pressure applied. I mean, we're in the 21st century. We're modern consumers. We've got the tech and the, the, the knowledge now, or we can at least educate ourselves on, on how to buy better chocolate. What type of pressures can we create to make the chocolate producers be treated uh, more fairly? Well, I think one of the obvious ways is to find a company like Grenada Chocolate Company who are making the chocolate. They're not just um, growing the beans. They're actually creating a, a little micro industry about um, making there on the ground where the cocoa is being grown. Mostly cocoa is a commodity. It's sent far, far away before it turns into chocolate. So I think that's that's a big one. Actually, there are many small producers using beans which they have got through you know a very long chain and they might be making really excellent bean to bar chocolate but it may be that it isn't impacting back at the beginning where it should be so it's it's about transparency i think ask lots of questions don't necessarily believe what people are telling you because there's a brand at the moment in in all the supermarkets which is claiming to be slave free but I think it's the evidence is a bit thin on that and certainly on the price it doesn't indicate that um, that money is going back to the beginning. Yeah. Careful if we're pointing fingers but it is important that we become more aware of our, our, our chocolate systems. Sophie I wonder we're talking about the culture of chocolate aren't we? I mean there is a there is a sort of cacao culture in the world now or certainly in the west where chocolate is is culturally you identify with a bar you identify perhaps even with a bean now and you're working really hard to promote the culture of chocolate. Um, we're in the modern day and we're moving towards the future what is it that you would say 
to, to sort of keep promoting cacao and, 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 and chocolate. Well, the feeling I have, uh, as, as Chantal was saying, actually, um, the more information you have, uh, you know, on your chocolate, on the bar you're buying, means if you know where it's coming from, if you know the person who is, for example, in charge, like Don Tito, Don Margarito, Don Vicente, you know, all these people, if you know who the, the face and hands are, I think it's a good beginning. Uh, if you're able to travel to the plantation, even better. But I know that, and right now, even less, even less. But um, I feel that if you, the, the future could be, I would be dreaming of, you know, don't, 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 could be a small or a big business, but where there's traceability, where there's a respect of what people are doing as a job, but also as a passion in the sense that uh, I know people like Don Tito, who is 86 now, and, you know, he's the fourth generation of cocoa producer. Uh, his daughter is now in charge, uh, Monica, but she's also now making a bit of chocolate, you know, like uh, drinking chocolate and stuff like that. And it's very funky to see, um, there's a lady here, I mean, a lady, uh, Flor, uh, she's in Oaxaca, and she's grown up in this drinking chocolate, you know, I mean, uh, like all Oaxaca family. And uh, she went to Europe a few years a few years ago, and she was so surprised and was so shocked to see a bar, a chocolate bar to eat in Vienna. And she said, oh, I mean, it's coming from Chaconusco, and they're eating it here. Mm. You know, she was a completely switch, you know, and she came back and she launched her, she launched her uh, being to bar for two years now. So it's quite interesting to see that because I never thought about that perspective because in Belgium, you normally eat it. I mean, well, I have a, mm-hmm. I have a, uh, this is, this is a question has, I have a vested interest in, um, because we're, we're moving along with this conversation because we come from the history and, and, and how it's produced and what it can do for the body. But I think now there are generational conversations we need to have. And that is quite a lot of the time when I read about cacao and, and, the, and the actual plant, it's coming under a lot of pressure. And there are there are fungal uh, attacks on it. The climate is changing. We've got issues of, as you say, security in the plantations. Has chocolate got a future? Because I know it's got a history. But Marcus, perhaps uh, from a, uh, a medical herbalist or a plant uh, understanding, uh, has chocolate got a future? Well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it would be very sad if it didn't. I think, yeah, you're you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think. By the sounds of it, Sophie has, has seen more of this on the ground than I have. I mean, I've only been on three three field trips around, around uh, Mexico and Guatemala for, for a few weeks each time. Um, but, yeah, we, we know that the, the sort of the, the monilipthora or, or crinipellis perniciosa, the witch's broom fungus, is the, is the big pathogen. And there are lots... Co- uh, cultivated cacao or cocoa is very vulnerable to lots of diseases because it's I, I describe the plant as a little bit of a geisha because it's 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 very it's so it's so dependent on on humans who have cultivated it to for mm. all of its wonderful qualities for so long that it makes it very vulnerable and and that's particularly so because we have this monocropping system of agriculture, which is something, you know, is, is, is well known about now. And you see, the thing is, in, in pre-Columbian times, cacao was grown in this system known as the milpa, which um, I, th- I think I described in the book as something like a, a sustainably produced um, vegetable garden or something like that, where you always had cacao with its uh, shade trees and grown with particular other food crops. And it was a perfect example of, of companion planting. 
Mm. Um, where each one would deter the pests of another or um, one, one, one plant would fortify the other. Um, and that is to some extent still done in cacao plantations, particularly more traditional ones. You know, cacao is grown under particular shade trees, but the higher, the, the more the um, growing, as with many, many crops worldwide, the more it's sort of um, commercialized, the more corners are cut for the sake of getting a bigger crop and you know there are two sort of things from that one is that it makes it more susceptible to diseases um the more you clone a particular cultivar and and abandon some of the traditional farming practices because they're expensive and they're time consuming and you don't get as big a crop yada yada the the more you make it vulnerable and hence you have this this uh, witch's broom fungus that devastated the world crop i think before in the 80s brazil exported um, I think something like 70 or 80 percent of the world's cocoa, probably Chantal and, and Sophie know better than I do the figures on this. But after that time, they they sort of dropped down to like 10 percent because it, it killed most of the trees. So now Africa, west coast of Africa is, is the biggest exporter, I think. Mm. Um, so one of the issues is the agriculture, which I think needs to change. And it's really, really exciting to to, to hear that small producers traditional growers are are sort of getting back in on the act commercially because i totally agree that's the way it, it needs to go but i think there needs to be a larger cultural just global solution i mean i think permaculture thinking has to be something i mean this is just my view on culture in general in terms of economics in terms of how we think in terms of how we farm we have to move in a more permaculture direction across the board because mm. if we don't we're knackered you know in many different ways mm. so that that's one thing there was a second angle but i've slightly lost my train of thought so never mind well <laughs> if i can oh, that's perfect marcus because chantal can you give me your opinion on, on the future of, of chocolate? Is there a future and, and, and how do we, we keep chocolate sort of uh, on, the, on the planet and, and, and healthy? Well, I'm going to be an optimist and say there is a future, but absolutely agree with everything that Marcos said, which is if you're growing organic cocoa, as I've seen in Grenada and it's happening on the little farm which, which I've invested in, that is not only cocoa, but you've got your shade trees, you've got your food crops, you've got your nitrogen fixing plants, which are things like pigeon peas, which can also be eaten. But that's putting back nourishment into the soil. You've got your good practices for draining the land. Um, and then you've got lots of fruit trees growing alongside. So, so it's a really mixed ecosystem. And then you have all the other insect life and animals and birds. I think if you go to the other extreme, so somewhere possibly like the Ivory Coast, where they might be cutting down virgin rainforest and planting just the monocrop of cocoa within a, a very short space of time, maybe 10 years, those trees will not be productive any longer. And then you've basically got a desert. So I think it's about respecting the land, sympathetic plantings, um, not looking for such high yields, but again, thinking this is a very precious commodity and it should be much more revered than it is really. Mm, yeah, we've gotten used to chocolate being on every shelf in every place that we ever travel to. So yeah, we, we need to respect it more. Sophie, can you give me your uh, opinion on uh, the future of chocolate and your experience in the plantations? Sure, sure. Um, it's a pleasure. I mean, what is very interesting in Africa right now is that um, you have a lot of more small initiative 
about making the chocolate in some communities. I've seen some from Togo, from Uganda, Ivory Coast and other countries like that. And it's very interesting to see that now they're getting organized. They're understanding a bit more about what they can do with the cocoa, you know, by themselves and, and trade them in a different way. Uh, but the future here, you know, uh, it's a bit sad in the sense that they, you have two trends in Mexico. Let's say that when you have a cocoa producer, they're quite old, actually, in Mexico. I'm just talking about the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can you can probably extend it to different uh, Latin American countries. Um, you know, the sons or the daughters don't want to take it up because it's a lot of work. And you have to be very careful about the quality because at the end of the day, it takes you to six months um, to get the cocoa ready. And sometimes, well, the you know, there's some climate change. And thank you very much. Bye. You just have, I don't know, uh, half of the crop. Not just because of flood, but also because there's no water. So it's a bit tricky. And at the same time, there's a lot of projects when they're actually planting cocoa. And they're looking for, uh, they're trying to actually uh, get back all these old uh, species they have here about cocoa. So that's very interesting. They have this double, um, double trend that, you know, abandoning some crops and planting some at the same time. So... Um, it's a very interesting twist happening right now. In Latin America, as as, as a region, uh, for what I've seen in Colombia and in, um, in, in Peru, you have a lot of um, planting. I mean, Mexico has very old plantation, and it's a completely agroforestry system, and that's very nice. As you were saying, no, uh, having these shade trees, but also fruits, which allows you to have some cash flow you know, uh, between two, two harvests, but also some flowers. I hope, I really truly hope that what cocoa producing needs is, is just help. It's not help. It's getting trained. It's understanding the value of the cocoa they have. It's getting some techniques like, like uh, organic, organic uh, you know, tech, techniques, details, so that they can improve and also have a better life. Not going just for productivity, but get really aromatic cocoa for, on one side for this kind of niche market, which hopefully is going to extend. And at the same time, be able to produce um, the bulk cocoa, but well done. So the Forastero, which is, there's no bad cocoa, as I was saying, there's only bad processes. And uh, and be able to sustain in between these two kind of um, of harvest, you know, to have the one to, for the local market, which can be fine or the bulk one, never mind. I mean, there's a place for everything. But to be able to uh, to deliver it here, because we should remind that Mexico is producing like 25,000 uh, tons of cocoa every year, and it needs like 120,000 tons. So you see the difference is huge. Yeah. Um, so roughly, yeah, I think this, this is the trends, and uh, there's a lot of ecotourism here developing. Um, and, you know, with all this gastronomic, because the Mexican gastronomy is now um, part of the human patrimony uh, of the humanity for 10 years. So this it's it's getting included, you know. I think we're going to need to draw this to a close because I tell you, we could talk chocolate all week or all year. And I know that all of you have got so much to say. But Marcus Pratchett, uh, Pratchett um, you know, your book, The Secret Life of Chocolate, is um, on my order list 
Uh, when I went to when it's 700 pages, I thought, well, this looks like a wow. Christmas gift. Uh, it looks <laughs> delicious, but I'm going to have to. I think I'm actually going to have to read it rather than looking at pictures. Right? I mean, this, <laughs> yeah. is, this is a proper Ideally. book about chocolate. Yeah. Ideally, yes, yeah, yeah thank fabulous. You. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully, you know, you, you sell thousands, if not millions of copies, so that everybody knows <laughs> what the secret life of chocolate actually is. And Sophie van der Becken, thank you so much. I know you're working so hard over there in Mexico with La Camillion, if I'm saying that right. I know you're the chief taster. I know that you, you judged so many different types of chocolate awards and, and just, you know, such amazing work. Uh, and um, I can't wait to get to Mexico one day and see the plantations with you and even try some of that please, chocolate. Please, please do. I mean, you're, you're most welcome. And, and send some books to Mexico too, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're on. Okay. There we go. Fabulous. And Chantal, I, I can't thank you enough for being able to pull what a, what has just been such an amazing day together. You know, your knowledge is, is so deep. And, and this Granada Chocolate Company that you're supporting and working with, I think it's, it's super important to, to look at this uh, tree to bar concept. And education is vital. And understanding chocolate uh, I, just as a subject is, is so important. And hopefully that Food FM has been able to do some of that today. So Chantal, thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for bringing us all together because it's been really a fun hour chatting with everyone and listening to all these incredibly knowledgeable um, experts. Oh, the passion is oh. so deep and the experience and the knowledge is, is uh, you know, jaw-dropping. Um, so I can't thank you enough. And I wish I could just keep talking, but we, we better not. But, but, but listen to this space. <laughs> next because Food time. FM, next time. I mean, Food FM is going to be talking chocolate all the time because I think it's a very, very important subject and one that needs to be uh, constantly opened up and discussed. And, and I think education, education, education. Um, and around the cacao and, and the ceremonies and the, the medicinal qualities and, and the teaching young people and, and the future generations. Yeah, I'd, that, I'd, uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to go revisit the ceremonies that Sophie mentioned. That would be a whole other topic, but seriously, that, that, that's a huge topic in and of itself. So. Well, then why yes. don't we do a, We'll do the chocolate ceremony on Food FM. We'll all get together and do that. <laughs> <laughs> that would work. You yeah, need yeah. to taste um, the amazing drink that Marcos prepares oh. from scratch from the beans using his metate which he um, is kind of manual version of a grinder mm. and it's My really God. sensational oh, it's, Marcus it's, it's a date remember that always when you're preparing a drink or chocolate you're always leaving a part of you inside so be in yes. a good mood the day you're going to prepare that for us please <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Like water for chocolate. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, um, Sophie, Chantal, and Marcus, thank you so much for joining us on Food FM and discussing thank you very much, chocolate. Thank, thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Thank, Arthur. You. thank, you. thank okay. you so much. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson. <laughs>